Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Uh, Judges 4 is where we'll pick up tonight. Verse 1 says, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the land, the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of this army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagoim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So again they did evil. This is Judges. They, they do things a little bit on the right track, and they just keep getting worse. Um, it, we can be more realistic with the book of Judges about human failings. And I think as we see this, they keep going back to doing evil. We start to get realistic about, as humans are left to their own devices, that just happens. But the more disappointed we get in humans, the more excited we should get about God's grace. Because the worse the Israelites get, and God is still with them, and he still treats them like his children, that should give us a lot of hope that God knows how to forgive some pretty ugly things, like we're going to get into tonight. Um, Ehud and Shamgar then were kind of at the same time. So that mention of Shamgar at the end of Judges 3, uh, that single sentence, the next chapter starts when Ehud was dead. So they're going back a person, and that likely those two were at the same time. Again, Judges doesn't do timelines like Chronicles and Kings does. Uh, the word Sisera, uh, we start to get the story. The meaning of the word uh, Sisera is not in Hebrew. It's in Canaanite. So it means battle array. Cool name for somebody, like a worldwide wrestling foundation wrestler or something. But his name was battle array. Uh, it could be that Sisera then is a title, like commander or general, that that Canaanite group used uh, because it is such an odd kind of name. It says for 20, 20, 20 years, notice that in these cycles with judges, it takes them longer and longer and longer to cry out to the Lord. And as people start to forget about God as a nation and as a society, they can go years and years and years without crying out to the Lord because they forget how to do it. So 20 years is almost a generation that goes by before they remember and cry out and know that they can call to the Lord for their help. They do, and the Lord's right there ready to help as soon as they do it. It says they were harshly oppressed this time. They're not just taxed heavy, uh, but the word there in the Hebrew is kozah. The harshly oppressed means a force or a might or a violence. They're being abused or beaten like they were back in Egypt. So it's gotten worse for them in this time. And then we get to judge number four. Judge number four is Deborah. Uh, now Deborah, verse four, was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and was judging at that time, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So Deborah, the word in the Hebrew means bee. I don't know if that means anything other than she's called bee. Um, and it, there's also a Deborah in Genesis 35 that was Rebecca's nurse. So we got two Deborahs in the Bible now. Don't get them confused. When it says then that she is under Deborah's tree, they're not referring, it's not like her tree, it's the other Deborah's tree, right? So the tree got named after that first Deborah. 
it says she's the wife of Lepidoth. So she could be the woman of, so the husband's otherwise unknown in the Bible. Like this guy's not around. He's not a leader. He hasn't stood up. He hasn't, he, there'll be no other record of him that we see. Um, it could be that she was a woman of Lepidoth. The word would mean the same thing in the Hebrew. So it could just be that she came from Lepidoth's house or household. So she might even be an unmarried woman. We don't know because the word could mean either thing in the Hebrew. But we do know that she's a prophetess. In the Hebrew, Neboiah is a word we've seen before. It is to be a prophetess is to speak the words of God to people. So a lot of times when we hear prophecy, we think that means that you're predicting the future. In the Bible, that's not the case. There's a lot of different kinds of prophets, um, but they don't all predict the future. So when people come to her for counsel and she says, here's what the Bible says, she's being a prophetess. And we don't really use that term in the English anymore in the church, but it would be appropriate. Anyone who knows the Word of God so well that people ask advice and they can just say, well, here's what the Word of God says. When you convey the Word of God to people, you are a prophet by a biblical definition. So that's where we get that word. Um, so... She gets this title. We have other women that have had the title of prophetess. So those of you that think women don't have a role in God's kingdom, you're nuts, and that's not biblical at all. Um, there are examples. There's the singer Miriam in Exodus 15, 20. Uh, she is leading alongside Moses before she critiques him, and then Moses kind of, she leaves leadership after that. Um, and, that's, and, and then we have here, we have another one. She's consulted for reciting the word of God or judging in the past, verse 5. Um, that judgment then is based on Mosaic law. There wasn't supposed to be a king in Israel. There were just supposed to be judges that you would go to. But those judges were uniquely supposed to be the high priesthood. So this is the thing. A lot of people use Deborah as this example of women leadership in the Bible. As a Bible scholar, I would encourage you to not do that. The entire book of Judges is an example of how God doesn't want it done. So Deborah's not, there's lots of great examples of female leadership in the Bible. This isn't necessarily one of them. Because instead of going to Deborah under the tree, the Jewish people under Mosaic law should have been going to the tabernacle to talk to the high priest or that local synagogue where they're doing things in a town or the judge that should be in the gate. So she's not in the right location and she's not serving under Mosaic law. She's just a really smart woman sitting out under a tree, right? But that's this, we're seeing that God's people are not doing things the way Joshua and Moses had them doing things. It's not a good example. So when we see these judges, the, the, the culture of Israel is descending all the way through the book of, of Judges. And this is a, a further descent in that they're not doing things the way they should. Third example, so there's singer prophetess, people that write songs with the words of God, Miriam. There's people that get consulted that we just saw in this chapter. There's also the prophetess that gets a word or knowledge of wisdom of the present tense. This is like Huldah in 2 Kings 22. A prophetess can be somebody that understands the times and is able to connect God's word to what's happening in the world and apply it. So what are we supposed to do in the face of this? A prophet in the biblical sense would be able to say, here's what the Bible says. This is what that means for how a nation should react or how people should react or a household or a family or an individual. So we got prophetess and, and expanding our definition of that biblically, we've got those three. There's also the fourth. And the fourth is, in the Bible, Isaiah, Daniel, Micah, Jeremiah, prophets predict the future. But they're not predicting the future like a soothsayer or a gypsy. They're hearing what God says to them, and they're conveying the word of God. So the definition's consistent in all four situations. 
Um, but when we use the word prophecy, then it should have that really broad term. It's either somebody that takes God's words and turns them into music. That's a kind of prophecy. Somebody who can be consulted for judging and, and helping or counsel a counselor. Someone who takes a word of wisdom from God and communicates it to people. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen that before, but when, like when a pastor says, you know, um, you come up and say, oh, I want to talk about something and say, and they say, are we talking about this? It's like the Holy Spirit told them exactly what was going on there. And that's kind of a word of knowledge. And it's, it's a phenomena. It happens and people just know things. And there's no way they could have known them. Um, except for God says, you should ask about their blue suede shoes that they're hiding in their closet or something like that. Right? So first, uh, 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 Chronicles 11.5 gives an expectation for prayer and prophecy. This is tough because this is where the charismatics go off the rails, right? If prophecy is all four of these things, then anybody can be a prophet. No, you actually need to hear from God to be a prophet. And here's how they would control that under Mosaic law. If somebody pretended they were hearing God's word and they were speaking on behalf of God and it was found out to not be true, they were killed for it. Like that's a pretty strict, you don't mess around and say, God is speaking a word of knowledge to me. If you don't know it's God, you should be really careful about doing that. In fact, I always tell stuff, I'll be like, I, I feel like this might just be me thinking this with my logic and reason, but I feel like I should tell them that. But I resist because I don't want to be in that place. And we don't kill people for being false prophets. But biblically and in, in the Old Testament, they did. It was a really serious thing. And this is part of what made it so we have all the prophets in the Bible. And I know I'm going off the word prophetess here for a while. Um, when we get a prophet in the Bible, what validated what they say is that throughout their life as they served at the temple, everything they said was coming from God came true. So then when they predict the future, it's because those first three things have all been true. So when they speak a word of knowledge in the presidents, people will be like, yeah, you're right. How did you get that? The Lord told me. So when they do that over and over and over again for 50 years in the temple and they're never wrong, and then they say, God also told me what's going to happen in the future, those scribes would write it down. If it ever proved to not be 100% accurate, not only would, and that person was dead, like say you predict something after you're dead, they would destroy every scroll that prophet had ever written. They're completely discounted. This is something we should hold up our own leaders to that standard. If somebody is going to take on the role of teaching the word of God, preaching, admonishing people, exhorting people, and they're wrong, or they fall into sin, then maybe that's not the place for them in the church anymore. They shouldn't be in leadership anymore. It's not that they're not going to heaven or anything like that, but we don't, put, we don't listen to them anymore because what we've seen is that's a faulty person to listen to. So that would happen in, in this area. So when they call Deborah a prophetess, it means that every word of wisdom she had came true. That she was in fact, and they believed she was talking to God and getting answers from God. Because we're in the book of Judges, we don't have a, book, a prophet book scroll of, of Deborah in the Old Testament. Because in Judges, everything's messed up. And she's not in the temple. And there's no scroll to write down what she's saying. So she's doing everything out of the Mosaic process. Uh, in that sense, though, we also have prophets that show up in the New Testament, like Anna in Luke 2, 36, if you want to take a look at that one, or Philip's daughters in Acts 21, 8. So this role of women having things to say to people, having a role and having participate an extremely valuable part of the community of God is consistent in both Testaments. So who is judging Israel at this time? It's Deborah that's judging at this time um, and they're not going to the priests anymore. So we should read that as a failed nation when we read that. Um, biblically speaking, um, we can see that when the leaders lead in the Bible, 
um, we see that they lead in such a way that God's commanded them to lead. So this is an odd situation. Where's the location? It's at the palm tree. It's not at the temple. It says it's between Ramah and Bethel. Uh, indicates that the writer didn't expect the readers to know the place. Does that make sense? Like when it says the palm tree of Deborah, the writer's not expecting that any of us know where that is. So there's further explanation between Ramah and Bethel. And that's actually where Rebecca's nurse and, and with the Genesis 35 account happened in that region. Uh, it said in, in Genesis 35 that it was outside of Bethel by a terebinth tree. So apparently that tree's still around when this is being written or it's in the grove where they named it and they named it after uh, um, Rebecca's nurse. So verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, um, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh to Naphtali and said to him, well, okay, so the story begins here. Um, before we get into Barak, his name means lightning for what it's worth. Uh, he's, he's a lightning cracker. Um, the story begins, and we, we see that we're, we're continuing on. When we get Barak and its son of Abinoam from Kedesh and Naphtali, we've got a third tribe. The first uh, judge, Othniel, came from Judah. Ehud came from Benjamin. Uh, Shamgar came from the Canaanites. And then we got Barak, who's coming from Naphtali. So you notice that God's pulling people from different tribes and honoring those tribes by having them have a role. Um, Deborah then uh, doesn't set out to do things on her own. She brings in one of the leaders of one of the tribes to do something or to hear something. She's close to Jerusalem. Barak would be close to Galilee. So there's some distance here that Barak would have to travel to get there. And here's what she says to him when he arrives. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy the troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men and the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulon. So that's with those two tribes, now if he brings in Zebulon, we've had four judges and we've had four tribes involved. Even though Shamgar wasn't there, we're just staying real consistent. And I'm kind of tracking that as we go through. Like, do we get representation from all the tribes or are there tribes that we miss in judges? Verse 7, against you I will deploy, deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. This is not leadership. <laughs> like this isn't what it looks like. This isn't Joshua, strong and courageous, go out and do things for the Lord. It's just not. This is horrible. Uh, this is a guy that won't do anything unless she comes with him. Like she has magic powers. Like if she's there, then the Lord will be with him too. And if she's not, the Lord won't be. Lack of trust, lack of faith. Has not the Lord God commanded Israel? So that's a rhetorical question. When she comes up and she asks that and she's speaking on behalf of God when she says that, it implies that Barak's already been asked to do it. In other words, God reached out in the time of trial and tried to get Barak to be the judge. And he didn't listen. So this is way worse than the first three. Even the Canaanite Shamgar just did his job. But Barak's got to be reprimanded or brought in by Deborah the prophetess to tell him to do what he's supposed to be doing. So this is not a good thing. This is the frustration, I think, of wives when their husbands aren't following the Lord, right? It's like, can you please, the Lord's calling you to do this, can you do it? And we want to see people rise up and do the right thing, and, but Balak's just going to be difficult about it. So he's not a leader. There's no direct connection from God that, that, that he's listening to in this story. Uh, and in worse, you know, he's just disobeying God and, and outright being defiant. So when she comes and says this, she comes, there's clearly a weight 
the Israelites clearly listened to Deborah. And in that sense, she was a leader because she changed the course of this guy's life in doing this in a significant way. Uh, he has chariots and a multitude, so it's going to take some measure of faith to fight an armed force that's in front of you. I know it would for me. So let's give, in that sense, we'll give Deborah and Balak some credit. They actually do go to fight this battle, which would take some faith uh, to go against people. And the two qualities are that they have chariots and they have multitudes. They're outnumbered and they're outgunned. And this is how God likes to work with Israel's armies. Who puts them in those situations, he does good things. He does the if, if you will go with me, and he puts a condition on God's word. And in that sense, like this is not our role model. When God says go, we say, okay, how fast, how, where do you want us? But when he says you go and you say, you put conditions, well, I'll go if this happens, I won't go if this happens. It's not the right way to do it. When he does that with Deborah, he's elevating Deborah over God himself. And he's putting Deborah's presence ahead of God's presence. So, and it's an excuse. Compare this to the centurion with Jesus. And the centurion says, will you hear my sick child? And Jesus says, yep. And he says, do you want me to come with you? And he's like, no, you don't need to come with me. If you say it, I know as a soldier, if you say it, it'll happen. And then he says, blessed is this person's faith. It's greater than all the people listening to me right now or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I should have actually pulled the verse there. Sorry about that. But that centurion had the kind of faith God's looking for. Balak does not. This is not the kind of faith God's looking for. Verse 9. So she says, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking. For the Lord will, tell Cis to, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You'd think here that woman would probably be Deborah, right? But there's a twist in the story. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak. Is it Barak? I keep saying Balak. Sorry about that. Barak to Kedesh. And Barak, well, I keep thinking Barak is like Obama. And I don't want to like confuse that in my head. And then so I go the other way. But it, no, it's Barak like Obama. Um, I won't make political commentary. We'll just go to verse 10. <laughs> and Barak and Zebulon and Naphtali to Kedesh, he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with them. So they go to war, and they're getting ready for it. They're going to war against an oppressive culture that's been severely harsh with them, violent with them, oppressive. Deborah then becomes the fourth judge, not Barak. It should have been Barak, but it's not. So she becomes the fourth judge. It could be that the first three heard from God via a priest or prophetess too, but there's no mention of it in the Bible. And here there is a mention of that. Um, he went up with 10,000 men. Uh, in this fact that Barak does gather an army and go up against the Canaanites, he gets listed in Hebrews as a champion of the faith, which is an odd thing because usually champions in the faith listen to God when they're told to do things. It, again, God's grace just gets bigger when humans get more failed. And I just keep thinking about that. Like in Hebrews 11, this guy gets listed on the champion's tree and you're going, holy moly, but he does. And he does because at the end of the day, he did what God asked him to do, even if there, it wasn't perfect. Verse 11, now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab and the father-in-law of Moses had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Za'anim, which is beside Heber. Heber is a common name, by the way. Heber the Kenite. It means, in the English, we'd call somebody buddy. It's, you know, pal, friend. So he's called buddy. Uh, it implies that there is a house or a tribal group of Kenites here. 
Uh, and in this verse, we're told, verse 11 is really weird because you're talking about Deborah and Barak. And then suddenly it goes over to this other character, Heber the Kenite. And that's because he'll play into the story later. And they're just putting all the characters on the table up front. What we know about this character is that the camp is near the tree. Um, and where we see people make camp is where they make their affiliation. When Simeon camps in Judah, he's affiliated with Judah. When Lot camps by Sodom, he's affiliated with Sodom. When you camp by a city or a group, it makes you kind of allied with those people because you have trust with them. You trust they won't steal your sheep if you're a herdsman. You trust that they'll do honest business with you. So the terebinth tree at Zanam is the border of Naphtali in Joshua 19.33, it got mentioned. Kedesh is right outside a city of refuge. So think of this too. Instead of living in a city of refuge or by the city of refuge, this person's moved away from that and allied themselves with the Canaanites. Does that make I mean, I mean, that was one of the things when you look at the geography here, where they're camping matters and where they're there. So if they're camped outside this city of refuge, what do we know about cities of refuge and the people that camp outside them? They're waiting for somebody. Odds are this Heber guy was an avenger of blood and he's camped outside the city hoping that person comes outside the city. So there could be some bitterness, some anger there. Uh, they're ready to go on things. But he would, it, apparently he brought his whole family group with him. So a whole tribe, little group of people is just camping outside one of these refuge cities. The point here is that the location by the tree outside the refuge city isn't in the city. It's outside the city. So that implies either an avenger of blood or somebody who does not ally with the Israelites. They're allying with the Canaanites. Verse 12. We'll get on with the story. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, has gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him for Herosheth Hegoyim to the river of Kishon. The battle commences. Both sides are gathered. They've brought their people together. They here in this verse could either be Heber or just advisors. So they reported to Sisera. It could either be Heber reporting to Sisera or they've just got advisors that have reported to Sisera. It doesn't matter that much, so I stopped my research there. They're allies. In either way, they're allies, and Sisera's gotten this news. He's going to march out against the Israelites, get ready to kill them. So the stage is set. Barak's with the Israelites and Deborah. You got Cicero with the Canaanites, and you got this third-party Heber camping nearby who probably allies with the Canaanites. Verse 14, Then Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, and the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots. I love that the Lord routed Sisera. Like, Barak's not doing it. He's just watching. And all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Sisera alighted from his chariot. It means to lightly jump off of something, like a bird alights on a, a, a power line. So Sisera alights from his chariot and fled away on foot, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. That's a pretty good fight record. And we know, from because we've seen it before in the Bible, that if there is casualties on the Israelite side, they typically list the casualties. So this is an absolutely one-sided battle. Um, we'll unpack those sentences. Up for this is the day. I think this is where we get the song, this is the day, this is the day. But wake up. If you have to wake up, where does that position Barak? 
He's laying down. He's sleeping on the job and she has to come wake him up. So Barak is listening. He hears it. He waits for it. That up is this command that comes from God through Deborah to Barak. Um, and he's been waiting for the Lord to move. So in this, he becomes one of the heroes of the faith too. That at least, despite his failings, at least he gathered the army and he waited for the Lord to say to move. And he was waiting on what Deborah would say. So you've got some good and some bad that comes with Barak, right? The Lord's gone out before you, Deborah says, like Ehud did, like Joshua did, like Moses. That's another thing where he's waiting for the Lord to go out before him before he does anything in combat or battle. And we can look at that as an image for our lives too. Before we engage with anybody around spiritual questions and discussions, we should be praying the Lord goes before us into that person's heart so the ground is fertile and ready for us to talk to them. Right? Waiting upon the Lord, knowing when the Lord wants us to move when he doesn't. It says the Lord routed Sisera. Um, Judges 5, when we get to Deborah's song here tonight, it's going to show that God did this routing through some sort of flooding. And we know with chariots on a flat plain and iron chariots, extremely heavy. This is not steel, lightweighted iron. This is the heavy stuff. If any rain comes along at all, it totally nullifies chariots. They can't storm across the battlefield when they're stuck in the mud, which would explain why Barak jumps off his chariot because it's safer to get off of that thing when it's stuck in the mud than to go somewhere else. This is, I think, what God does when he wants his people to move. Suddenly, we don't have to worry about the path being cleared because he just clears it. And in this case, all it would take is a rainstorm. Uh, Herosheth Hegoyim is, in the Hebrew, a woodland. So, um, so I looked that one up, and I just there's this point. Have you noticed in the book of Judges, when we look up the names, they don't really tell a story? Like Joshua, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like As we've gone through the first six books of the Bible, those names are often part of the story. They're really rich and thick. You get to, like, Deborah's name means bee, and Barak means lightning, and these names don't have any connection to God's purpose or God's plan. And then I thought, that's another indication that the people of God during this period of history aren't as connected to God's plan. And they're not as tied in. And we're, we're, the writers are not capturing some of those interesting kinds of pieces for us. So Judges is therefore a little disappointing when it comes to the research side because the names don't mean as much. And maybe I, I'll eat my words next week, but we've, we're in five chapters now and there hasn't been a lot in those names. It's been pretty thin. Um, so we've seen this historical recounting in the first six books, and it hasn't looked like that. Verse 17. However, Sisera had fled away on foot. I'm going to stop right there. I think this is where we get the word sissy, right? Because he's, he's just running, and he's not even there. to. I mean, he's this big commander of an army with battle array, and then he hops off the chariot and just takes off and runs, leaves all of his soldiers behind. He's a sissy. What a ninny. Then he goes hides in some lady's tent. This is not the kind of guy you expect. The enemy looks so fearsome at the beginning of this story, but isn't it funny that when God's people stand up, the enemy doesn't look so fearsome anymore? The enemy can't stand against God, and that turns Sisera into sissy man, and it just happens just like that. So Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So Barak's getting words from Deborah, and the Heber the Kenite's having his wife do his work for him. For there was a peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. There it is. They're at peace with each other. So you've got the Kenites making deals with the Canaanites. Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, 
Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Like she's shouting from her tent to come in here. Guys, when a strange woman invites you into her tent, there's an answer to that question. No thank you, especially at the Ren Fest. You just say no to that. Don't go in that tent. But he does, you know. So she says, come aside to me. Don't fear. Why would she say don't fear? Because he probably should be fearing this situation. When he turned inside in, with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Again, bad decision, Cicero. Like, this isn't good. So if, like, let's point out this too. If there was any regard or respect for Israeli rule in the land at all, these people are within running distance of a refuge city. Sisera could have gotten his wheels going and he could have ran right to God's refuge. But the Canaanites so reject that beautiful plan of God, he doesn't even run to refuge. He runs to a strange woman's tent and he hides under the blankets like a sissy. So this isn't good. Also, the other thing here too is this is the ancient world. No propriety going on here. Right? There's no modesty. This is another man's wife. He just went into... And when, by the way, that tent thing, we've seen before in the Bible that the women had different tents from their husbands. Not strange at all. That's just part of this ancient world. So wives would have their own tents. Um, but to go into another man's wife's tent, that was bad then, as bad as it is today. Like if we were up camping up north and stuff and we started going into each other's tents, that's just horrible on all levels. That's not how God wants people to live. So there's so much wrong with this. Um, a, a huge breach of propriety. It, it questions her integrity is going to be questioned from this. But she's the one inviting a man. Think of the world they're living in. It's just no regard for propriety, for modesty, for purity. Right? This is the Canaanites. So he cuddies, cuddles in a blankie, asks for a little milk. Um, and this is where, we, you know, no guts, no honor, no fighting with his men, none of that. Oh, 19, I didn't get to the milk yet. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. Water. She opened a jug of milk and, oh, it is milk, and gave him a drink and covered him. And, she sa and, and he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes to you and inquires of you and says, is there a man here? You're going to say no. So he's telling her to lie. Uh, you know, then JL, Heber's wife, takes a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. It's going to get graphic. And went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. This is just gritty, honest truth writing here. And then Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and she said, Come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. And he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple that we know had gone all the way through to the ground. So we see a little violence here. I like that the Bible doesn't run away from that. That's what happened, so it writes that. Um, Heber's wife is repeated in verse 17. We're supposed to read this as an affront alone. And the tent peg, we should know about ancient tent pegs. These aren't tent pegs like when we go camping, the little six-inch things. These are like when the circus comes to town and they're laying down a good foot-and-a-half tent peg. right? These are huge tents made of sheepskin. They're heavy. So this is something that would easily get through a human head. She, women in the ancient world would often be the ones that set up the tent and the men would handle the animals. So she's a strong woman and she knows how to send a spike through somebody's head with one hit. Because you don't stick around for the second hit. She's got to do it in one thing. So this is a 10 to 15 inch long spike that she drives down with a hammer. Um, 
The word where it says she went softly is the word lot. This is a great part of this. It means she came to him with mystery and enchantment. She wooed the guy. What part of Sisera's head, like you got to be a Canaanite to think this, what part of Sisera's head has a fleeing man running by a tent thinking anything good is going to happen in that tent? Like honestly, what's he thinking, right? That he's going to, you know, have some action with this girl? And that's what he's thinking when he's running for his life. But she comes to him softly with enchantment. She's cooing him. It's okay. It's all good. Don't worry. And this is how the enemy often comes to us. And I'm not trying to emphasize with Sisera here. Like she's doing God's work at this point. She's killing a very evil man. Right? But this is part of how evil operates. And sometimes it's going to get itself. So here the soft approach keeps him unsuspicious. And then smack, she gets him. You wonder if some degree, the weird thing with this story with me is that she invites him in and then she kills him. So maybe the reason we're dealing with Jael here is her husband has sided with the Canaanites, but she's holding fast to Yahweh. And you've got kind of a marital disagreement about who they serve in that household. Again, the the nation of Israel and the Kenites are part of that is a messed up nation right now. But you've got men not leading in this story. Barak not leading with Deborah. You've got the Jael's husband not leading in this, this situation. And you've got Sisera not leading on the other side. You've got three different men in the story not being the kinds of men that we've seen in the Bible so far. And you've got two women stepping up to do what needs to be done in that situation. Thank God for these women. At least that's why we have two chapters of Judges saying thank God that the women stepped up. When the men fail, the women are there. She drives it into the ground so we get this grisly image of how sinners get ended. They're pinned to the ground, literally, um, and that's where they're headed, right? Anybody? Thanks, Zach. So there's treachery in two ways. She breaks the treaty of her husband, back in verse 17, and she breaks the rules of hospitality, a big deal in the ancient world. If you bring somebody in your tent, you treat them like a king or queen. It's still the case in Bedouin societies in the Middle East that hospitality is everything about your honor. And when somebody comes into your house, even if they're your enemy, you treat them like kings and queens. So what she did to this guy in her tent is a breach of the laws of hospitality that were common across even Canaanite societies. That hospitality is an important thing. So there isn't one word from JL explaining the motive, why she does this, At some level, this is just flat-out murder. She kills him. But it's not advocating for murder. So God uses this evil to relieve God's people from the greater evil of the Canaanites. He allows this to happen. So a woman encourages Barak. A woman finishes his work. And this woman here is going to do this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, if you know who he is, he loved this story. And, And he thought of this as just an image of sin, right? Jabin being Satan sending out Sisera in the form of sin to attack the people of God. And when you, that happens, you don't just combat with that. When God beats it, he beats it and finishes it. And sin is essentially nailed to the ground because that's the end result of sin. It gets nailed. And when he would do that, of course, he was looking at that saying, when we defeat sin in battle, we don't just stop because we've won the battle. We follow up and make sure that sin is dead and gone from our lives. A few victories here and there, it'll keep creeping back into your life. But when you get the best of sin for a while, you end it completely. 
And you don't just let it run away and hide in a tent somewhere so it can come back to get you. This is all charred Spurgeon, but I love that image, right? Of just bringing that out. Um, so just beating sin is to be a good moral person. To kill it dead is the work of God's spirit. We don't do that. And we talk, I talk to a number of people, some people in here where you're working and you're struggling with sin. And when you struggle with sin, you will lose. You're in the flesh. When you go to God and appeal to God to beat the sin, God can beat that sin and get it gone and get it killed because that's what God does. And of course, the obvious image, whenever you see a giant spike going through somebody, that sin got nailed to a cross too because that's what happens to sin. You don't just beat it, you beat it dead and you kill it. When Jesus became sin for us on that cross, he's treated the same way Cicero was. He was nailed to the ground. So just that image there, that idea that that's going to happen. So she invites Barack in to say, come and see, I will show you. So Barack's trying to do his thing. And just like Deborah predicted, a woman was going to take the glory and, and finish the work that Barack should have finished. He wasn't there at the start. He's not going to be there at the finish. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan. God did it, right? Barack doesn't get any credit here. In the presence of the children of Israel. Uh and when it says he subdued Jabin, that's because Sisera is his general. So when you lost your general and you've lost your army, Jabin doesn't have any power to administer his cruelty anymore. So this victory actually affects the, the one who has commanded it from happening. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan. You beat one sin, it's so much easier to beat the next one. It, right? it gets believers, veteran believers, it gets easier to beat sin as you go through your life. And believe me, there's so much in us that you'll spend your whole life peeling off layer of layer and becoming more Christ-like at every step. But it gets easier because you see the results when it happens. It's just beautiful. So the work of the kingdom isn't just to beat the generals, it's to beat the enemy king. And that's the part that we're here to see, right? So that idea that Jabin has to be beaten has to happen and that Israel grows stronger and stronger until they destroy Jabin, the king of Canaan. So this is just a battle that starts a movement in Israel and they once again get the Canaanites off their back. So this is awesome. Judges 5, the story goes right through. Um, and what do God's people do biblically? What have we always seen God people do when they win victories? They get out of Egypt and they won that victory. Miriam writes a song and sings a song and they all start singing together. What do they do when they're down with the Whoville people and the Grinches on the hill? They all start singing songs together. So this is what Israelites do. They're like little hobbits. They just, you know, they're nice people. And when they have these victories over these oppressors, they just, again, they sing a song. So Judges 5 is just, they wrote the song down so that people could sing it in future generations. They just didn't put notes with it for us. But this idea that this is the result of God's people, like God wins this huge victory against iron chariots. That's like F-16 fighters and tanks. And we win a victory against tanks. They don't go on the news broadcasts and, and brag about it. They just sing songs to the Lord and praise the Lord when it happens. And we do the same thing. We win a major spiritual battle. We sing songs about it. And this is just wonderful. I got to sing this morning, by the way, so that was always fun. And there's that... that Pleasure that we have as believers when we sing together that's beautiful. So here Deborah writes a song. Jael gets credit for the kill. Deborah gets credit for being the leader here and stepping up because Barack's not. Uh, so it's a lot like Miriam's song in Exodus 15. If you want to compare the two, you can. I tried to compare them. I didn't see a lot of similarities because they're two different women writing about two different situations. 
But the idea that we have someone writing a song, I just thought that was awesome. Again, just that image of Israelites as these people that sing songs together in human history, right? That's not Alexander the Great or the Romans. They didn't write songs and sing together when they won victories. But that's what Israel does. They sing songs. And it's just sweet. Verse 1, chapter 5. Then Deborah and Barak, Barak, son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched out from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. That's where we think that's what happened there in that battle. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Uh, we'll go back and unpack some of this. God expects his leaders to celebrate when victories happen. And it's, it's part of the word of God. It's part of what's published. So we're shown here an example of what godly people do when they do the right thing. They write songs about it. Leadership then is key in any work here that's recorded by God. God did all the work, but Deborah and Barak get some credit here for working with God. God actually tracks that and recognizes who his servants are on the earth and honors them. So they're willing followers. Maybe not at first, but at least Barak came around and did what he's supposed to do. Um, and then you get these people doing things. Um, when a director goes to make a movie, you got one person directing the action. But if everyone does their job right, that movie can be an Academy Award winning or an Oscar, whatever goes with movies. That movie can be really successful and a beautiful piece of art when it's done. But if that director hires a bunch of Baracks, it's probably going to be a B-lister and you know be rentable for two bucks in a year, right? Some movies made are movies that are higher quality than others because of the people following the director. And leaders are only good as the people that follow them. So when you get these situations and you get these things happening, and it says in verse 2, when leaders lead in Israel, and that's what this story's been all about, is that they don't have leadership anymore. But when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. That's the beautiful thing. When leaders lead and people follow, God works and things happen. And it's this amazing thing in the kingdom of God. And then we say bless the Lord because that doesn't happen in the flesh. None of us like to follow. We all like to lead, right? The hardest thing in the world for humans to do is follow. But when God's people march and they march together, bless the Lord. This is God doing things in our lives. So it says there that they willingly offer themselves. We get this image right in that first line of sacrificial love. To go into battle against the enemy is to say, I'm ready to die today. Or it's awfully hard to go into battle. And remember under Mosaic law, if soldiers were scared, they didn't march with the Israelites. If they're still following law. If they had kids or their farm, their crops hadn't come in, they were supposed to stay home. And the third thing was, if you're a coward, you don't fight with this army. We only take people ready to die. Only taking people that are willingly offering themselves in verse 2. That's Israel's army. So maybe they're smaller, but they're committed. And there's no stopping people when they're committed. That's the force that, we, that God's given us to employ. Verse 3 says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. When the forces of fear and dominion on this earth kick in, 
The resistance thing is to just say, I'm going to sing to the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. You can be worried and stressed out and anxious if you want to. I'm going to sing to the Lord. And this is one of the, oddly enough, this is the battle that's been fought throughout human history. Even Pharaoh didn't want to let the Israelites go praise the Lord in song. That was his issue with them. They were okay to continue being slaves, but when he said you can't go sing and worship your Lord, that's when the exodus happened. That's when God's like, okay, enough with Pharaoh. We're going to move on. So when the world tries to stop God's people from singing songs together, God actually intervenes when that happens. Isn't that exciting? Because we're seeing that in the world today. And, and that means that we should expect to see God moving in the world because biblically that's when God steps in. Try to get my people to stop singing and there's a problem. Now, we're, now those are fighting words because God's people sing. And I just think that's just great. Of all the things that humans could do that God says, ah, we're not going to let that happen. Stop them from singing and, and that's when God steps in, right? Our joy is our strength. The phrase there, I, even I, is when you see those duplicating words in the Hebrew, that's an emphasis or a resolution or a choice. It's not a feeling. It's I, even I. My existence itself is going to do this. In the Hebrew, the, the word there is she'ir. Uh, it is to sing with a public connotation. I, even I, will is something where you've willed yourself to do something publicly, out loud. I'm going to proclaim something is what that implies. So a minstrel would do this. Job 36.24 uses that word with behold. I'm going to do something and I want you to see what I'm going to do. Watch my trick. I sing songs. right? That's my trick. This is, this is what they do here that's so right. In fact, chapter 5 is why Barak goes into the, the, this list of heroes of the faith. is because this is the part they do right. Uh, God accepts this praise and adds it into his word of God. I'm sure the Israelites wrote a lot of songs that didn't make it into the Bible. Right? Of course, there's the Psalms, so there's a lot of them in the Bible. But there's probably a number of songs that didn't make it in. But this one does. And God makes sure that that's there. Verse 4 says, Lord, when you went out of Ser, when you marched from the, from the field of Edom. Ser and Edom are the exact same place, just two different words. Like Minnesota and America. They're just two different. It's the same thing. Um, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. This is, by the way, a fulfillment of prophecy. Moses in Deuteronomy 33:22 said that God would rain out his, his, he would pour out his rain on the Canaanites as part of conquering the land. So when this happens, they're pointing that out. Um, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. The clouds poured water, mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath. So chapter three, that's one sentence, gets mentioned in this song, adds confirmation that those things are going on. In the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. This is an interesting phrase. When governments fail, travel gets restricted. Because if you can't travel freely, governments aren't doing their job. If it's hazardous for me to travel or there's restrictions on travel, you have this thing where there's this idea that this isn't a good thing in verse 6. It's said with a negative connotation. The highways are deserted because people aren't doing trade. They're not traveling. They're not seeing their friends. The highways should be full in Israel because they're going to the feasts and back. The people are going to the cities of refuge. The priests are supposed to keep those highways clear so people can use them. So when the highways are deserted, the whole country's fallen apart. And travelers walked along the byways. Why do you take the back roads instead of the highway? It's either because you're a really bad driver 
or there's criminals on the highway. So you take the back roads to hide from them. You take the forest instead of the main trail through it. So everything gets harder in these situations. And so they're giving us some sense of what the country was like when all of this happened. And it's because the Canaanites don't worry too much about law and the land. So good people in those situations kind of hide and they stay away from things. That's not a good thing. I was just thinking, when the bandits have freedom and good people don't, the nation's been flipped. It's not God's intent for a nation. It's not a, Good people should be free and bad people should be locked up. And that's God's intent for a nation and how it should be. So we see in this song that's that image of the world was messed up. Verse 7 says, Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. It's not arrogant for Deborah to say she did this because she did. Arrogance is when you believe more of yourself than what's truth. Truth or just being a person speaking truth and documenting what actually happened. Um, some people read this and they think of this as er Deborah being arrogant. Maybe that's the case. I don't read it that way at all. Nobody else stepped up, so she did. And, and she's going to get some honor and glory for that because she actually took accountability for herself regardless of what the rest of the world looked like. So the villages are shut down, things are crap. She's still going to live for the Lord. And it, does, and, it, and it shows this faith that she has that she should get credit for, and that should be honored. But you can read it the other way if you want her to. Verse 8, uh, they chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. In other words, they went to battle with no weapons? Is that what I'm reading there? Afterwards, you can tell me what you think. But So wait, they didn't have shields or spears? They just went in with some knives and swords? That's not how you fight iron chariots. Um, remember Shamgar used an ox goad? Like, it seems that the Canaanites have taken away their weapons. Which is, again, when you get evil governments, they take away the armaments of the people. Because they want to control the people. So then the people are using ox goads. And here, in verse 8, they don't seem to have weapons. Um... The goal, I think, of the enemy is good people are hiding and walking on the byways and they don't have things to fight. And this is what Satan wants. He wants to disarm God's people so they don't have the word of God as a sword in their hand. They don't have a shield of righteousness or belt of purity. I always mix up which one goes with which. They're not armed with the tools of God because they don't know God. And when that happens, Satan, what he loves to see is that good people are hiding that says there's war in the gates. The gates is where judgment should happen. So they're doing battle in the courtrooms. Sound familiar? And there's no justice in those courtrooms because whoever's stronger wins the battle. And it's not a rule of law anymore. It's just a rule of whoever you know, can pay the most money. This is horrible. So when Satan creates those kinds of societies, and he has throughout history, it's not new at all. Histories where nations have good people hiding. Look at right now Australia, Taiwan. People in Canada are having fences put up around their churches. Pastors are getting locked up. Nigeria, 100 Christians were killed this week. You can go anywhere in the world. Satan loves to create societies where good people run and hide. The villages are dysfunctional. The courtrooms are, are corrupt and unjust, and God's people are totally unarmed and unable to help themselves or take care of themselves. God loves this kind of, or Satan loves this kind of destruction. God loves to step in when there's those kinds of situations. Deborah, speaking for herself, in verse 9 says, My heart 
is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. The rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly. And the offering word there is the same word they use for sacrifices. Instead of putting cows on the altar, the leaders stepped up and said, you can kill me. I'll die for my people. I would love to see a leader in America willing to die for me. We haven't seen one of those in a long time where I really believe they would die for their people. If we go to war, I don't see the president marching out in front. But in Israel, they did. That was one of David's failings is he didn't go out and march in front of his armies, putting himself at primary risk because it's better for the leader to die than for the people he's shepherding to die. Amazing. Notice that she's with the rulers in verse 9, but she's not one of them. And she's talking about them as a different group of people. She's a mother, as she's called herself, not a king. And she's defining herself according to, you know, Mosaic law and standards. So she is doing the leadership role because the leaders aren't, but she still has her heart with them. She wishes they would. My heart's with you. I want sacrificial leaders to do this. I want Barak to step up and do his job. So she isn't just about herself here. She's about the leadership. She's praying for them. In verse 3, we see the people were willing. In verse 9 here, we see that the leaders are willing. So we see Israel being willing to do what Israel should do. So as a good judge, judge number 4, Israel's coming back around to where it should be. It it seems to be a theme in these two chapters. Uh, Not a mention of being able to do things, just being willing to do things. Because God doesn't need us to be able. He needs us to be willing if that makes sense. And a lot of times God's people don't do what they're called to do because we don't feel like we're able. And if that was true, I wouldn't be teaching a Bible study right now. All you say to God is, I'm willing. I'm willing to do it. Like, heck, Lord, I'll do this. And if if you want to do something with it, do it. But we don't have to be able. We just have to be willing. And willing to make mistakes is part of that. Verse 10, speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attires, and who walk along the road. I think Jesus read this, and he's like, yeah, I want to rip on those people. And then he did. He went down and had some choice words with the Pharisees. But I think Jesus grew up reading things like this. She's calling out the people who ride on white donkeys at this period in history. We know that the Pharisees started riding on white donkeys. So part of the corruption of Israel is that the priests are becoming mightier and higher than thou. They're up on their high horse or donkey. And they pick white donkeys, which are rare. And they take those precious donkeys for themselves so they can be important. And look at how Deborah just... (laughs) Speak, you who ride on donkeys, who sit in judges' attire and walk along the road. You're perfectly safe because you're rich and you're wealthy. But you're not sacrificing yourself for the people. So she's calling them out. Um, Here already, uh, it seems like the Pharisees are more concerned with their clothing, their judges' attire and the rare donkeys than about mercy and justice. And what does God desire? He desires mercy and justice. And the Pharisees, at this point in history, and the judges, they're already going off the path that Jesus is going to have to correct hundreds of years later. And they're already down there. Verse 11, Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. If only these people would do what they were called to do and be the Levitical priesthood for the people. If only they would get off their high horse and be where the people are. The noise of the archers, they're not going out to battle with them. 
the Levites were supposed to go out to battle with Israel's armies. And it seems that they're not here. But they were supposed to go out to battle with them. Not to fight, but to serve and be medics and that kind of thing. It says among the watering places, doing common labor. Getting water was the most common labor that existed in the ancient world. We have plumbing. We've forgotten about this. But the person who had to go get the water was usually the person with no talent. And people didn't have other uses for. Because going to get water is something a 12-year-old can do. Oftentimes, the wives would get sent on this task. But if there was any sort of grouping of women in the tribe, it was the lowest of the wives that got this task. And we've seen that before. So here's these people riding on white donkeys in judges' attire, and she's calling on them to speak and do your job. And if they spoke, then we would recount, they're supposed to remember the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember when we saw in Joshua, one of the key responsibilities of the leader is to teach the word of God where it recounts or remembers what God's done. If we don't tell our kids what God has done, we're failing to do what we've been commanded to do. So we see they, they recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. These, aren't, these villagers don't belong to the judges. They belong to him. The word his there is a direct reference to God. You should have a capital H on that his in your Bible. But it's, it, it's the acts of righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. These are God's people. You're supposed to serve them. And then if you do these things, people will go down to the gates because they know they'll get a fair trial. If the judges do their job, there's justice in the land. So we get both mercy and justice that we're seeking from these people. And humility in, in the beginning of verse 11, right? Doing their job, not running from their job. They're safe on the bylaws while normal people are hiding in the corners. Implying at some level that maybe she's calling them criminals. The job of God's leaders is to tell stories to remind us about what God's done in our life and what he's going to do. And in that we get strength. We remember, we renew, and we retell what's going on. Chapter 4, they're going out to Deborah. They're not going to the gates. So when we see that the people should go down to the gates, it seems that Deborah wants them to go to the gates and not out to her under her tree. She's doing this tree thing because there's no justice with the gates. And common average people are going out to Deborah to get fair judgment because what's going on down at the gates is probably they're getting paid off. And you don't go there when you're, there's not justice there. And people will do this. It creates chaos in the land. If I can't get peace and serenity in my life, then people will start to make it their own way. You'll get vigilante people or you'll get corrupt people because people will protect their families. So this idea in verse 11, this man, it'd be nice if people would go down to the gates and it makes you wonder what's going on where they're not going down to the gates. Get that chosen director to make another movie. You know, get some of that backstory behind this. Verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. <laughs> if God's people are awake, they're celebrating the Lord. Arise, Barak, lead your captives away. O son of Abinoam. So they're kind of putting their authorship on the song there. We see a balance here in verse 12 of a godly woman and a godly man doing their job together. And some people look at this as like, this is how it's supposed to work. Is where a woman and a man are working together, then God can work through that partnership. And here it's not a marriage, because we're in the book of Judges, but you still get this image of them waking up to do what they're supposed to do. When God's people sleep, evil thrives. When God's people wake up, it can't resist God's people. There's, the darkness has nothing on the light. But God's people have to wake up. And they have to start doing what they've been called to do. In verse 12, it's to wake up and to get up and to awake and arise. Verse 13, then the survivors came down. 
the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your people. From Machar, rulers came down. And from Zebulon, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes, the, verse 15, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. And Issachar, as Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command among the divisions of Reuben. So we get a glimpse in that verse of what happened when they raised their 10,000 people. And Deborah and Barak, when they're writing this song together, they are put in, oddly enough, it's, it says the song of Deborah in a lot of your Bibles, but it's clear from the first couple of verses that both Deborah and Barak are given authorship of this together. Um, but we'll give Deborah, it's the song of Deborah, that's what most people refer to it as. But they're listing in verse 14 and 15 who joined the team and who didn't. Which tribes were on board and sent their people and sent their leaders to go fight against the Canaanites. So they're essentially, the faithful are getting pulled from everywhere. And you'll notice in those verses that it doesn't say they all came down. It, it pulls people out. There are people that bear the recruiter's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. So there were leaders that came out to fight for Israel, even though Israel's totally dominated by Canaanite. Have you seen, we had this morning in church, we had uh, two ladies that were Catholics a few weeks ago. And they wanted to just start hearing the word of God again, right? And so they, they started to gather. And when, God's, when the world gets nuts, then the real people, the people that love the Lord and want to be with the Lord, they start to gather. And it's really powerful. I'm sad Mike Houck's not here because he turned me on to this book called um, uh, Tell, Thou, or, um, Live Not By Lies. Thanks, Grant. Um, and it starts out with the story of Kolokovic, who is a, in the Eastern Europe before the communists took over, Kolokovic saw it coming. He was a Catholic priest. And what he did is he started a underground church before the communists came that actually made it so that Poland and Czechoslovakia were able to overthrow the communists later. They were the ones that led those first peaceful resistance to the communists. And they eventually kind of became the force that overcame communism in their countries. Here's what Kolokovic did. He told people, you can't be a halfway Catholic. You have to be all in for Jesus Christ. I, I, honestly, reading this stuff, it's just amazing. You have to give everything to Jesus. And the only way to fight the communists is to say, I'm willing to give my life, but I'm not going to speak lies. I won't be part of that tyranny in my land. And when we see this verse, verse 14 and 15, I'm just thinking of that. These are the people around Israel that said, we won't have this anymore. And we'd rather die than have oppression and cruelty in our land where we can't walk the roads. We don't have villages that work. The markets aren't fair. The courtrooms at the gates are broken. Everything's, it's not worth living if we can't live in righteousness and peace and serenity with each other. So the forces of good and the forces of evil go head to head. So Kolokovich, the way they did battle based on the word of God, and this is where you got to give credit to some Catholics. He just said, you got to be all in. He started secret groups of young people that would meet in homes. And you know what they did? They read the Bible. They went through the Bible. And they did this, and then when the groups got too big, they just split up into two groups, and they just kept dividing and multiplying. By the time the communists took over, they had a small group of believers in every single town in Czechoslovakia meeting and studying the Bible together. And the communists came in, they took over the cities, the churches were decimated by the communists. They took the priests out, put them in camps, and killed a lot of them, to be blunt. So they didn't have leadership anymore. 
But Kolakovich was smart enough coming out of uh, Germany. He saw how totalitarianism works. It's control of the society at every level. And the only way to fight that is to have people say, I'm going to study the word and I'm willing to die to do that. Really simple. All in. So he had all these kind of people that were committed and it changed the course of history. When we see what Deborah's talking about here, I, I don't think we can underestimate the value of the people of God coming from all these different tribes. To me, it's a great movie scene. Like when you're hoping somebody will show up to do battle, like in The Patriot, and all the people come back and they're like, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready. And, and people just start gathering because it's like, no, we get what the mission is here. We want to fight for a peaceful society and not live under the oppression of Britain. I don't know if you've seen The Patriot. It's a great scene where he sends everybody home and then they all just start coming back. And you see that those are the heroes, those are the champions, willing to die for what they believe. And that's kind of an interesting moment. So there was a great resolve of heart at the end of the 15. A great resolve of heart. They came, they recruited, they were with, and they came under the command of Barak. Verse 16, why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of the heart. Gilead, that's Gad, stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan remain on their ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. So <laughs> Deborah, a prophetess, writing a song that's in the word of God, calls out the heroes. And then in verse 16, she calls out the people that didn't show. And that's, I think for me, that's a convicting kind of thing. If God notes who is heroic for him, he also is noting who didn't show up and never bothered to come to the table. So you get the cowards being called out. That's not for the weak of heart. Um, staying out of the battle is just kind of pointed out. They failed to do so for three reasons. And just to repeat those and make sure we get that out of those verses. They were watching their stuff in verse 16. The divisions of Reuben had searchings of heart. The phrase there is to be musing about things. They're so busy thinking they didn't bother to act. Have you met people like this in the church? Happily, we'll talk to you at length about theories and things they've read, but they're not actually out doing anything or discipling anyone or teaching anyone or serving anyone or ministering to anyone or encouraging anyone. I mean, just encouragement is better than sitting there talking about theories. There's a point at which we can kill our spiritual life by musing too much or having great searchings of the heart. Get over yourself. Get up and do what God's called you to do. And then you can muse in the evening, but do the work during the day. Verse 17, the third thing, is that they just stayed or remained and continued doing what their eyes doing. They stayed at their ships, which means they were out probably fishing, right? No offense to fisher people in your spare time, but when God's calling you to a battle and you're just going to do your own thing and not be part of it, I really wouldn't want that to be something that I'm recorded for in, in God's the Lamb's Book of Life. God, I, I called you out for something, Sean, and you didn't show up. So sorry you missed that. So Asher is, is next in all this. Manasseh and Gad, they're closer than Ephraim and Benjamin were, but Ephraim and Benjamin showed up to the fight. And you got so they would have had to go through Manasseh and Gad to get to these territories. Gad's on the other side of the river, they just don't show up. They're totally overrun by the Canaanites. Verse 18. Zebulon is a people who jeopardize their lives to the point of death. Naphtali on the heights of the battlefield. Two tribes get called out as being absolute studs. 
In fact, Zebulon jeopardized their lives to the point of death. It doesn't say any of them died, but it implies that they were at the front of the battle. Not only did they show up, they were ready, ready to take the knocks and give their lives for the sake of, of God's kingdom. So we see three different types of people being listed. People who showed up, people who didn't show up, and people who actually were there and full on and at the heights of the battle, they were there. They were ready to fight. So those that put their lives on the line are celebrated and they're given special honor. Ephraim, West Manasseh, Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali were all helpers and they helped Barak do the work God called them to do. And they were all there. Reuben, East Manasseh, Dan, Asher, they're coward losers. And when you put them in a song, they're worthy of shame to be sung by your children. Like these are the loser tribes and these are the winner tribes. We can already start to see the nation dividing, right? They're all supposed to be tribes that show up, but they're not. So we know that those that are willing to give up their lives, John 12, 25 promises us those are the people that actually gain their lives. If you live in courage, you have life. If you're a coward, you've already killed yourself. There's not much going on. So those that cling to their lives are the true losers in life. Those that are willing to give them up, you have some freedom because there's nothing that can stop you. So, <laughs> Revelation. I don't usually go to Revelation, but listen to this in context of this song. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, Satan, Sisera, you know, whoever, who deceives the whole world, and he cast to the earth, his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, brothers, who accused them before our God day and night, it's been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. This is like Deborah saying, bless the Lord for these people. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devils come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. We're in that short time where the enemy can come and attack. And we're being tested. And God and Jesus and the disciples and the prophets and the, the, the epistles all say to us that we're in a spiritual battle. And we fight that battle every day. And in that sense, we fight it with joy. I love the fact that they, they can't stand before the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. It's our word that we fight with, not our swords. And in that, that image of the Israelites showing up to battle without a shield or a spear, they don't need weapons to fight these battles. It's a spiritual battle. So those that love the Lord or love the Lord more than their own life are given a special credit in this song. And for me, that sticks out like a sore thumb. I want to be there too. Is my life really that worth it? Like my wife is like, don't talk like this, Sean. But honestly, really, if I die, I get to go be with the Lord. That's kind of good, right? That's a good outcome that I'm okay with. If I live, I just get to talk about the Lord more, which is a good outcome that I'm okay with. I'll take either one. So it doesn't matter that level. And that equips God's people to deal with tyranny and to deal with Canaanite oppression that's been around since the beginning of time. It's not new. It's what people do when they're not serving the Lord. So the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony, and not loving our life is a key weapon that we see from judge number four. Those that adore their life can't really live it or cling to it in some way. So we let it go and say, Lord, you can have it. It's your life. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's the only way. You let it go. 
Revelation, uh, Romans 8, 2, by the way. Verse 19, the kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought. In Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They're not going to win. They fought from the heavens. The stars from, from their courses fought against Sisera, and the torrent of Kishon swept them away, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. I think we see when we're talking about fighting from the heavens in verse 20 that Deborah recognizes even the physical battle against iron chariots is really a spiritual battle. And it's really one in which we either serve the Lord or we serve ourselves or we serve the Canaanite gods that are fake. The rain did most of the work. She gives credit to the Lord for that. Um, oh, my soul, march in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded. Then galloping, the galloping of steeds, right? So there's this scary movement coming in and all this noise that's happening out there. Doom is coming. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they didn't come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Uh, Moroz is a proper noun. It's a place. It's not known where that place is. It's really in Deborah's song and that's the only place we see it. Um, it's not entirely a Hebrew word. So the, the linguists don't believe that that word is actually a Hebrew kind of word. The closest word in the Hebrew to Moroz is actually the word refuge. And we're right next to a refuge city when we're up here, up in the Galilee area. So it could be one possible thought on this Curse Morose thing is when all this battle is happening, the refuge cities weren't really doing their jobs. And there's a curse that's on there that Deborah's proclaiming, uh, that they didn't come to help. So perhaps the city of Kadesh, which is that refuge city nearby, the fact that none of those Levites showed up to the battle, everybody else came to fight, but the people that were dedicated to God's service were nowhere to be seen. How, how sick is Israel if that's the case? So perhaps the people are hiding out in the city when they're supposed to be out at the battle. Like David hid out at the, at the thing. That's not the purpose for the house of God. The Levites, the purpose was there to serve the people and they weren't. So God's moving, he's helping, and the people that were dedicated and set aside to do that aren't there. Mark 11 starts with a uh, story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. Then he goes in and curses the Pharisees. And then he comes out and they see the fig tree's been withered up and dried up. And a lot of people look at that as kind of an image of if God's priests don't do their job, they're worthless. And if the tree doesn't bear fruit, it doesn't have a lot of worth. Jesus tells a lot of stories like this and they're really convicting stories. If you have a life that's been given to you and it bears no fruit for the kingdom, you're not worth much to the kingdom. I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven. There's promises around that. But you're not worth much. There's a curse that comes with that idleness in our lives. So Jesus leaves the house of God. He removes his blessing from that tree. And it's Peter that points out and sees that the withered tree is a bitter one. There's also a bitterness that comes with that. So when Rebecca, or I'm sorry, when Deborah says curse morose in verse 23, there's a curse that comes with not being there and part of the battle. You're missing out on what God's doing if you're not there and part of it. And that's kind of a curse because you will grow into your older years never having seen God at work because you never show up for the battle. Most blessed among women is Jael, that wife of Heber the Kenite, Buddy the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg her right hand to the workman's hammer, 
and apparently she was right-handed. She pounded Sisera, she pierced his head, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still, and he and at her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. You can hear the musical pieces here. There's some repeated lines uh, that would be put to music. Uh, they would sing these things as they march around. Jael's called blessed in the song for having the boldness and to finish and kill the bad guy. She was the one that ended the movie, right? So she's given some credit for that. Uh, the worker's tools are again used. We saw the ox, ox goad with Shamgar. We're going to see the jawbone of a donkey here soon. But here we see a working tool, a tent peg and a hammer does the work. So using what God gives you seems to be a theme we're going to see in Judges. doesn't matter if you have iron chariots with you or anything like that. Maybe all you have is a tent peg, but you use it for the king. You know, and you have an opportunity to take out the sissy man, you do it. So this tells the story to music. And it repeats what we saw in the last chapter. It keeps an emphasis that Sisera died at her feet. She gets the credit for it, just like Deborah prophesied. Um, I broke down the song a little bit. And um, there's em two emphases. When you take all those verses, it, it is regal feet, kara, which means bowed, and Nepal, which means fell. You know where it repeats itself there in verse 27? Regal kara Nepal sakab. Regal Kara Nepal, Aser Kara Nepal, Sadad. So you can really hear the musical cadence there. And the emphasis seems to be on Kara Nepal, bowed and fell. Two different concepts. To bow is to worship something or bow yourself before something, to come under something. And part of the enemy has to bow or be the footstool of Jael at the end of this story. Another promise from Revelation where the Lord will come and he'll make his enemies your footstool. You'll bow before it. The word fell is to die or to be killed, which is where I think Spurgeon got the idea that this is an image of sin. Not only does this person bow before their greater or their, the more honorable person, but they're going to fall. And sakab is to lay down physically. And then sadad at the end of the sentence is to die spiritually. So you're going to fall and bow down before the people of God, or Jael in this case, and you're going to die physically and you're going to die spiritually both. So there's a religious connotation in verses 26 and 27 with the bowing, the laying down, the falling, and the dying. Verse 28, the mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried through the lattice. So the mother of Sisera is seeing all this happen out the window? So this is a song. We're going to give it song credits. Um, but there's an image here that they're trying to portray. And cried through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? It's because it's stuck in the mud. Why tarries the clatter of chariots? So she's watching, waiting for Sisera to come home, and he's not coming home. And they're not, sing, they're not singing this in a song of victory like that's a bad thing, right? So her wisest ladies answered her, yes, and she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil to every man a girl or two? What? For Sisera, the plunder of dyed garments, the plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery from the neck. So all his mom cares about is clothing. And you get a sense of the, just the sickness of the Canaanites. Her son's gone and she's worried why he's not coming home. And well, we should hear loot coming back. There should be stuff coming from this battle he went off to fight. Where's my stuff? And so 
The Israelites are portraying the Canaanites with this desire for that. And then you get the line, to every man a girl or two. Like that's rape and nastiness. But that's something that the mom is endorsing in this culture. Like when my soldiers go out to fight, they should be raping all the Israelites. So we get a sense of the heavy burden that's being put on these people and how bad it really was. So no one's safe when Sisera's soldiers are out. So the Hebrew representation shows us what's important to the Canaanites. Spoil, sex, and Gucci scarves. So they fight for money, clothes, and and apparently multiple um, victims. So they take God's order of things that leaders should protect, and they corrupt it. Instead of soldiers protecting people, soldiers are out hurting people and stealing from people. And you see what kind of societies the Canaanites were and how bad it was. So verse 31 says, let, us all, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. What a beautiful image. So let's take these, these people that are evil shouldn't rule our land. They need to not do that. And those who love the Lord be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. That's an interesting image. To love God then, and part of this song, is actually to hate the enemy. And when Jesus told us very clearly, we don't hate people, we hate the sin, we hate the adversary, the spiritual battle that's out there. Sin's horrible. If we know people that are living in sin, they're generally not happy people. You know, they might be when they start, but it has a corrupting effect on people over time. And it devastates and it destroys. We don't hate that person, we feel sorry for that person. They're not living with joy. They're living with anger, bitterness, hate, depression, sadness, anxiety, stress. We don't feel, that's not the person we hate. We're fighting the adversary that's put a human being under that kind of oppression, right? And we hate societies and leaders that do that to people. It's not a good thing. So we hate those enemies, but we're defined by the love of the things that we love. And as Christians, we are defined by our love. It is what we have. We love things and we sing signs about them. And that should be a blindingly clear, like the sun when it comes out in the full strength. You ever try to look at the sun when it's at its full strength? You do, but then you get little sunspots and your fifth grade teacher comes in your ear and says you're going to make yourself blind if you keep looking at the sun. So all that kind of happens. But when the sun hits our eyes, it's hard to see. And it should be that way when God's people are leading that it is so brilliantly bright and we, that God's glory comes through in a way that it's, it's hard to take it all in. Got to kind of squint a little bit. It's hard to understand what that looks like. If you're an archer trying to shoot, the sun in your eyes is bad. But if you're a sunbather, which I've been taking to doing, by the way, we have a pool and I try to get in a good 15 minutes a day, not to tan, but just to soak in the rays and take a break at lunchtime. When you're soaking in the rays as a sunbather, it feels glorious. You know what I'm saying? You just feel that sun hit your skin and you bake a little bit and it just feels great. And you're like, ah, and it relaxes you, the sun in its full strength. But when I sunbathe, I close, close my eyes. I'm in the presence of the sun and it hurts to look at the sun. But if I'm an archer trying to shoot in a battle and I got the sun in my eyes, I'm useless. And you think of how human beings react to God Almighty. God Almighty can either be, he is blindingly brilliant in our lives, but that can either be something that feels glorious and we just bask in the presence of the Lord or we're constantly fighting against the Lord and trying to shoot against the sun. And we're blind and we can't see a thing when we do that. I also thought of Paul. When he was blinded by the light, on the road to Damascus, it was daytime. So something changed or a light came that was even brighter than the sun that hit Paul. And what happened to him? He went blind, couldn't see because he was in sin and he's shooting against the sun 
and it's not a good place to be. So the land had rest for 40 years is the end of this song or this chapter. I love that the word so is there with a song. They made and wrote this song and recounted it all and the Bible records it as so they had rest for 40 years because they're doing it right. They're celebrating the good things. They're fighting against the bad things. The judges, judge number four is successful. Deborah with Barak actually encourages them to do it. The Bible requires discernment from us. And that's what I kind of took away from these chapters, right? We're supposed to know our times and where we live. We're supposed to recognize if people can't walk down the road and they have to go on the byways, if there's no law in the gates. And we see these images that were a problem when these judges showed up and they were ready to start going out and dealing with those problems. And as believers, we need to know that too. So just to land uh, or finish up on some extra wonderful passages, Matthew 16, 3. The first word is hypocrites. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. You can do everything in your day-to-day life, but you'd have no idea what's going on spiritually. And I don't, I don't want to be that people. Jesus chastises the ignorant people, and he praises those that are wise and humbly seek the Lord. There is a division and a difference between different kinds of people that God is sorting and filtering out. And tons of the parables are all about God filtering and sorting people. And, and, and you're, we're sorted into two categories, those that serve the Lord and those that don't. And we have that image. First, uh, First Chronicles 12, 32, the sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They were given glory because of their wisdom because they understood their times. They knew what the place God had put them in the history of the world. And they understood where they stood in that history and what their role was. So this willingness to fight off evil, even spiritual evil, it scares off that evil for 40 years. They get a whole generation where evil is too cowardly to come against them again. That's interesting. And they hunt down Sisera and they take care of it. Notice they finished the army before they went after Sisera, right? Because they knew what their priorities were. And they took care of the threat to the people before they took care of this individual guy running around. So Sisera gets taken care of. The functional result of saying no to evil is going to be peace for the people of the land. When they say we're not going to have that anymore, then they get peace. The functional re, or, or a, a, a functional yes to being at peace is often to live in evil. Let me explain. If evil happens in our land and there's heavy oppression and we seek peace more than we seek to right that, the end result is that evil's going to reign because evil will take what it can get. But at some point when there's a defiance of God's law and we say no thank you, the end result of that is actually peace. When we live under God's law, people can be at peace. But we can't be under peace when there's no judgment in the gates. We can't be at peace when there's oppression and when God's people aren't allowed to sing. That's a problem. So we have a spiritual battle in front of us. And the result of spiritual battle, every place we've seen in the Bible, is when we fight spiritual battles, we study the Word of God, we pray together, we let God fight those battles for us, and we sing songs. And we worship together and we eat together. And that's what God says to his people over and over and over again. When you got battles to fight, do these things. And we've got these images of spiritual battles in the book of Judges during a period of history where they're actually going out on battlefields and fighting. And we're told in the Hebrews that those are images we're supposed to learn from. We're supposed to get something about our spiritual life from those chapters. So I hope you did tonight, and I hope you understand Judges 4 and 5 a little better than you did an hour ago. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, 
we just thank you for Deborah. We thank you that she stepped up and she knew the signs of her times. She knew what needed to be done, even though the Pharisees and the, the, the Levites of the time were already becoming corrupt and not doing their job. Lord, we are, as a people of God, we want our leaders to be strong. We want them to be bold. We want them to be um, unapologetically uh, bringing glory to you. Lord, we have people in the church right now that are in it for the money. We have people in the church right now that aren't teaching the complete word of God. We have people in the church right now that are compromising. And Lord, we just pray that you'll give them strength. We ask you to have them turn towards you and to honor you. And we want them to be leaders and we want to follow them. Uh, we want them to be strong and united, Lord. And Lord, raise up who you need to raise up to get that done. We don't care if it's Barack or Deborah, raise them up and help them to wake up and arise and let your people shine, Lord. May, in times of stress and conflict, we have such an opportunity to show people a better path that they can follow you. So Lord, help us learn from Deborah. Help us learn from her role model of calling the alarm and calling people together, gathering the the willing fighters from all over the place to be able to do that spiritual warfare. And may, um, Lord, may we, for ourselves, tend to ourselves, for us in our house and our fellowship and our brothers and sisters, Lord, may we just stand for you without apology, without reservation, and with joy and grace and love uh, that we can invite people in to come and see and to come look at what God's doing in our lives, Lord, because you're filling us up. So may your word stick in our hearts this week. Lord, I pray that we all have a song in our heart this week, that we um, remember and we keep the, the music of your worship and your praise and we keep that close to ourselves in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.